short-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, attorney and former deputy assistant to President Trump, May Mailman. Hi, Mike. Hey, May. How are you doing this morning? Um, you know, there's, it's just Trump all the time. I'm already <laughs> sick of it. And we are many moons away from being rid of it. But other than that, I'm okay. Yeah, that, that's sort of how I feel as well, I think. And of course, we are going to be talking about Donald Trump uh, in a number of contexts, the indictment and what the election's looking like, some new polling numbers. But there are going to be some non-Trump things we will be getting to, like the credit rating downgrade for the U.S. and uh, some stuff about gender affirming medical care. There was some congressional testimony about that that May is intimately familiar with. Uh, uh, initiatives and referenda, social media echo chambers, some new research on that. Now, a lot of that's probably going to end up in the midweek show, but we're going to get to as much as we can here. But before we do, I wanted to give uh, sort of an update or a correction, I guess you can say. last In last week's show, Jay and I were talking about the Hunter Biden plea deal, and we, one of the things we talked about was that pre-trial diversion thing on the gun charge. And both Jay and I thought, ah, it's not a big deal, the gun charge. Well, we heard from a federal judge who's a listener, and he, he had uh, this to say. He contacted us. He said, both of you guys are wrong about the Hunter gun deal. I get about a similar charge per year making false statements on an ATF form. It's a felony. No diversion. I have a defendant in a case with that charge now, a 20-year-old African-American woman. No criminal history, not even an arrest. No diversion even offer. He said it's not a thing. Federal courts don't do that. Personally, I think we should, but that's not my call. And he said two days after the Hunter diversion deal was announced, my defendant appeared in court. I asked the prosecutor if she'd been offered the same deal. Answer? No comment. And he said also he talked to the head of his probation office and she's been there around 20 years and said, nope, she's seen like three diversion deals in that time. So it's always good when we can rely on the experience of people who really do these things for a living. And I thought that was an important, uh, some important information to, to add to what Jay and I had to talk about on that. So there you go. All right. Well, you know, we've seen, gosh, a number of Trump indictments at this point, but the big one, the one we've been waiting for, came out this week when a federal grand jury in Washington, D.C. returned a four-count indictment against Trump. The charges are conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights. Prosecutors contend that Trump knowingly lied about voting in a number of states in order to disrupt certification of the election, as well as pressuring federal and state officials to challenge election results that he knew were not fraudulent. And while prosecutors agreed that Trump had every right to speak about the election, his First Amendment free speech rights there, including questioning its legitimacy, they contend that knowingly using lies to obstruct the electoral process is not protected speech. And although 
three of the four charges involve conspiracy. Trump was the only defendant named in the indictment, which potentially may streamline the process compared to an indictment in which Trump's alleged co-conspirators might have been named in charge. And maybe that will happen at some point. Um, and while Trump may argue that he believed the election results were in question, the prosecution will be presumably presenting evidence that numerous officials told Trump that this simply was not the case. In fact, in one instance, as mentioned in the indictment, it was alleged that after Vice President Pence repeatedly challenged the rigged election narrative, Trump told him, you're too honest. Now, as expected, Donald Trump pleaded not guilty and posted on Truth Social the all caps message. I need one more indictment to ensure my election. So that's a typical Trumpian response there. Uh, there's a lot going on here. May, what's your what's your initial reaction to the uh, let's just start with the substance of the indictment? So I thought the indictment missed the one thing that it needed, which is anything about Trump's state of mind. What is necessary for Jack Smith to prove is that this was all a sham, right? That President Trump knew he lost the election and he was trying to monkey with the law in order to defraud the United States, obstruct Congress, et cetera, et cetera, but get something that he wasn't entitled to, right? And throughout the indictment, there is nothing, zero, about Trump's state of mind. There's a lot about Mike Pence's state of mind, Brad Raffensperger's state of mind, the White House counsel's state of mind, A.G. Barr's state of mind. So you've got all these people telling Trump you lost, or at least, you, you know, your fraud claims aren't doing well in court or whatever. But I can't find a single instance where Trump even acknowledges, I, I hear you, I get you, but I got to try my case anyway. Nothing. And I just, it, you, I guess it's possible that Jack Smith has that information and is just hiding it and holding it back. But that seems very implausible. So that to me, if that's the one thing you need to prove, and that's the one thing that's missing in the indictment, I find that super problematic. You know, I, I've heard that from, from a lot of folks. And one common reaction I've heard from, from people is, just because you're ignorant of of the law is doesn't mean that you are somehow absolved or something like that. Now, I, I think it's a little bit different here, but you're you're the attorney, and and maybe you can explain why in this particular instance, uh, you know, it'd be one thing if say Donald Trump shot somebody, so I didn't realize that was illegal. I thought it was okay. That that would not be a, a reasonable defense, certainly. But in this case. It you can argue that it is, and maybe you can explain why in this particular instance Donald Trump's state of mind uh, may be absolutely critical to uh, to the outcome. Right. So there's a divide between general intent crimes and specific intent crimes. So like if you're speeding and you get pulled over and you say I didn't know, speeding does not require that your state of mind be any specific thing. It's just that you're speeding. I mean, you have to be generally like aware and knowledgeable. If you pass out in the car and your car ends up ramming into something and it really wasn't your fault, you have, you really do not have a state of mind, then you don't even have general intent. You have no general intent to speed. But in a general intent crime, all you have to do is be 
intending to do the thing. I'm intending to speed, but you don't have to be intending to break the law. For specific intent crimes, it has to be more than I'm intending to do the thing. And here, when you have, I'm, I'm looking at defraud the United States and corruptly obstruct an official proceeding. So for corruptly obstruct an official proceeding, it's that word corruptly. It's not enough that you actually obstructed a official proceeding, which like query does, you know, a several hour break, like whatever. But let's just assume all the rest of the, um, in, in the elements of the statute are met. That corruptly requires a specific intent that not only did I intend to obstruct the proceeding, but that I intended to do so corruptly. And it is that corruptly piece that requires that what you knew that you were doing was not allowed. It's like lying on an insurance form. Like it matters not that you, there is some state of mind there that's required that you are doing something fraudulently. And so that's the same thing with defraud the United States. There's a lot of case law there that it's not just, you know what you're doing and it's like ignorant of the law but that you are doing so within a specific intent to defraud the United States. And that defraud piece requires that you're trying to get something that you know that you're not entitled to. So I completely get this argument that in general, it doesn't matter whether what you're doing is illegal or not, because most laws that we have are these general intent crimes. All you have to do is intend to do the act but not not here. And so it seems to me another element of this is you can't just say, well, I didn't know, and well, okay, you can go on your way. There is, if I understand correctly, the how to determine whether somebody knowingly did something or not, you can make an argument that, well, a reasonable person should have known. And if you willfully blind yourself to facts that might indicate that you're breaking the law and a jury is convinced that you've willfully blinded yourself to these things. Well, that essentially is the same as, or can be seen as the same as knowingly doing these things. Is that, is is that more or less right? So yeah, like whether an extreme version of recklessness is the same as intent and in some areas of the law, yes, not in all areas of the law. I don't know if they're for this, uh, you know, specific, these specific provisions, 18 U.S.C. 371, 1512, whether the Supreme Court has opined on that level of extreme recklessness equating to intent. And so I think there's definitely going to be arguments both ways. Um, And it's also, it's just the other issue, I think, with the indictment is that the real crux of the indictment is about the false elector scheme. Yes, they mention stuff about storming the Capitol, but the, but the real thing that, that it's at issue here is this alternate electors, fake electors in the states. And when you look at Trump's participation knowledge in that scheme, there are some conclusory statements saying that Trump directed it. But his only participation that they point out 
is a phone call with one of his co-conspirators to Ronna McDaniel saying, we need these alternate electors set up just in case we win our, our cases. And then everything's going to move very fast. And so we need our alternate electors set up. That's the phone call that he's on. So that's just these, all of these facts moving up to, you know, Trump was intending to do something illegal when you, all you have is conclusory statements and then his actual participation is that phone call. It, it just is not, it's not a strong case to me. Does it matter that it's not a strong case? Do are you still in front of a somewhat hostile judge? I'm going to say somewhat, even though I think it's far more than that. And, and a hostile jury, like, yeah, you're going to probably lose motions. You're going to, if it gets to the jury, lose the jury. But it still doesn't, I think, change my opinion that this is not a strong indictment. And, and you mentioned the judge, was, uh, uh, Tanya Chutkin, knows an Obama appointee. She's been one of the toughest judges on sentencing people uh, in regards to January 6th related offenses. Uh, and of course, in, in D.C., you're probably likely to get a jury pool that's going to be less sympathetic, generally speaking, to Donald Trump. But but then on the other hand, you do need uh, a unanimous finding from that jury. It doesn't seem to me, based on my reading of the indictment and the fact that, of course, the indictment is probably, I would think, the strongest case because the defense has not had a chance yet to sort of poke holes in that, that getting all of those jurors to, I mean, all you need is one, right? And so I guess to me, it doesn't seem like the strongest case. And so then the question that comes to my mind is, okay, well, Jack Smith is obviously a very smart, very experienced guy. And so either... He thinks the case is a lot stronger than I do. And hey, that's certainly possible. Or he felt it was worthwhile to go forward with these charges, even though the case might not be all that strong. And I wanted to get your take on, on that. Right. I think there's two theories on the right. One is Jack Smith is a partisan hack and this is election interference and he's very, he hates Trump and there's just a lot of, and the, the timing with Hunter Biden, it's always right after something that's bad for Joe Biden. And then I think the other theory is Jack Smith just is a super aggressive prosecutor that cannot help himself. When he's going after Bob McDonald and gets overturned 9-0 by the Supreme Court, um, it doesn't matter. I mean, he, he is, if he were to look at you, if he were to look at me, and his task is go find the crime, he will find the crime and he will bring it without any filter in his brain about whether this is a good idea or not. And so I tend to think it's more the latter that like, I mean, this is why when I was in law school, there were a group of people all on the left, all who wanted to be public defenders, who just hated prosecutors because prosecutors, maybe like like the, the view that some people have of cops, is that once you have this amount of power, it just like seeps into your soul and you just use and use and use the, the power. Now, I know a lot of prosecutors. I don't buy into that mentality across the board nor do I think like all cops abuse their power. But I do see maybe that argument for Jack Smith that just he views his job not 
not in the way that I think a prosecutor should, which is, yes, there's the law. Yes, we have to decide whether you broke it. But then, yes, we've got to think about other other things. And instead, more, I'm going to bring this case. I'm going to bring this case. And and, and that's, that's really how I see it. Because I would think especially when you're talking about a special counsel, because that is your, right, your sole thing that you are doing. And to put all that time and effort and energy into that and just come away saying, oh, yeah, I nothing really there that's strong enough. So sorry. I, that just seems to me so against kind of what you would expect from from someone like a Jack Smith. And, and you know, when he was appointed, you get all the, oh, he's a he's a consummate public servant, uh, uh, totally apolite. We hear these things all the time right, when, when these folks are appointed. But I, I would agree with you that the problem is that, you know, to, to a guy with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, I mean, Trump looks like a nail to Jack Smith. Of course he's going to. And so that's that to me seems, I agree, that the simplest explanation for why we're getting what we're getting. But so I guess you would agree with me that it seems probable that Donald Trump won't necessarily be found guilty on any of these particular charges. Or or, or what do you think? Or do we not know enough at this point? So I am betting that this drags out for so long that that guilty, not guilty question is one that we're not going to know until after the general election. And I do think that a, you know, a Republican president would end this, Uh, whether they would fire Jack Smith, whether they would pardon Donald Trump, whatever. So like I think that the political solution is one solution and I I just think that there's going to I hope that I guess that we get some clarity on the legal issues um what of these statements is protected by the first amendment which which aren't what is the standard for obstruction of official proceeding what is the state of mind um necessary that by the time you get all the clarity on the legal issues there's very little of the case left. And then only at that point do I think a not guilty verdict is possible. But that's going to require the judge ruling against Trump at the lower proceeding, the D.C. Circuit ruling against Trump again on the legal issues, taking it all the way to Supreme Court. I mean, I just I see this as so, so long of a process. Even even though uh, I I would expect that the judge uh, would want to move things along as expeditiously as is reasonable. And it seems like from what I've heard from some of the uh, uh, the rulings about uh, the next the next stage that she's inclined to do that. But you're thinking even there and even though they tried to, I guess, streamline it by not naming anyone but Trump, it's it's probable that this stretches past January of 2024, you think then? I think even if you were to just not have any motions and just do the trial, you know, like start with, you know, naming witnesses, getting discovery, the discovery. I mean, how many people did they interview for the grand jury? I know somebody who was interviewed and they probably interviewed this person four times, five times. They started saying that it was harassment. So going through all of the issues that were covered from all of the many people I mean, this was a years long process or I guess a year long process from the January 6th committee. 
leading to another year plus long or year long process from Jack Smith. There's just so much to get through. I, I, I have not heard an attorney who has said that they think that this will be, this will go to trial before the general election. Yeah, you know, I, well, I wonder about the, the co-conspirators thing. Uh, do you think that those folks were not named, even though we, we pretty much can figure out who they are, certainly, and that's that's more or less been done. Do you think they weren't named to, to maybe try to give them, uh, to give the prosecution more leverage to try to turn those folks or have the threat of being named and charged over their heads? Or was it, do you think, just to try to streamline things or some combination thereof, I guess? Well, at least what's being reported in the media from the quote unquote legal experts, who I would never disagree <laughs> with, is that um, this, the not naming the co conspirators is an attempt to streamline the case to hear it before the 2024 election. Um, and this is, you know, if the co conspirators, I'm just reading. Uh, if the co-conspirators were indicted, that would almost certainly slow down the process, potentially with the other defendants filing motions, seeking to splinter their cases from Mr. Trump's. So I I agree with that. I assume that that is the reasoning here, which I guess is problematic to me because I don't think that whether Trump is a criminal should be linked to the election at all, right? Like it just adds to this narrative that this is election interference if what you're trying to do is get this guy in prison before the election i don't think that's a good story to tell the american public rather than i am blind to uh circumstance all i care about is the law if you are criminal we're going to do it we're going to do this in the normal process and you're going to like it just and this so, is about yeah. the law. This isn't about who you are as a person. And I think that this, we're not going to name the co-conspirators and we're just going to go after Trump, blows that idea up. Gotcha. And, and so the argument then would be, well, yeah, sure, it could be the case that it, I would say it would be likely would be the case that if Donald Trump is, is reelected, he would almost certainly direct the uh, he would fire Jack Smith. He would end end the case, but that would that's a separate issue. You don't you don't. I, and so I think there's something to that. You know, when you mention that, there's also this theory that Democrats are doing this in some sort of grand conspiracy, which uh, you can't see my eyes rolling, but whatever. But that you know, Donald Trump had that post right about how one, one more indictment and it ensures my election. And there are a lot of people saying, yeah, there are people who are doing this because they're hoping that Donald Trump is the nominee because they feel confident that Joe Biden can beat him and beat him soundly and so forth. And my thinking on that is, wow, be really careful what you hope for. Because I remember back in 2016 where I was hoping exactly the same thing. Because uh, I thought, well, I don't know who Hillary Clinton can beat, but I'm sure she can beat Donald Trump. Uh, and wow, I, you know, I'm not going to get burned on that one again. So I don't think that's the strategy. I don't think Jack Smith is in part of some grand conspiracy. But if he were, I would say it's a really dumb conspiracy because, uh, yeah, I, yeah, anyway, so. Yeah, no, that is what the Republic, like not, I wouldn't yeah. say the Republicans are some, saying. I would yeah. say that it, for some people, it's a talking point that has a lot of purchase. But I think the reason that that has 
purchase has to do with the reason that Trump is popular in the first place. And David Brooks had a really good article in the New York Times called What If We're the Bad Guys? And it basically talks about class in America and, you know, starting from like Vietnam War when the wealthy didn't have to go to war, but the middle class did just like all the way through to today. And I think there is this idea that the that society has been set up in a way that very much rewards the people that it rewards, like the elites or whatever. And then the elites hand out uh, the the benefits of society to the people that they feel are deserving and the people who they feel are deserving are not Trump supporters. Um, and so although I think like, I don't agree with this grand conspiracy necessarily. I think we have to acknowledge what that feeling comes from. And I would recommend you read that article. Like it is just, it it helps understand the feeling of just classism in America that we cannot, cannot brush aside. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree on the article. Uh, I will try to remember to put a link in there in the show notes because it's definitely worth reading. You know, it also, it seems to me, uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm not Jack Smith, but it seems to me that if my, my position on bringing charges against a political opponent would be, I would only want to try to indict someone even when the law is absolutely clear, the evidence is compelling. Uh, and then in this instance, it, it seems to me that what Donald Trump did may have been dumb, may have been impeachable con conduct. He was, I mean, he was impeached, but wasn't convicted. It, it, it may have been wrong in a lot of ways, but it doesn't seem to me that it was clearly criminal. And I just get really concerned when it seems like the criminal justice system is being used to try and punish people for maybe who deserve punishment, but not through the criminal justice system. And that, that doesn't mean that I think that I don't think that Joe Biden is you know, the puppet master pulling these strings, but it just feels to me to be, I won't, I won't go so far as say an abuse of the system, but Boy, I'm just uncomfortable with a lot of these federal charges against Donald Trump, aside from the documents charge, which I feel like, okay, that seems to be pretty straightforward. Donald Trump kind of did that to himself. But on these, a lot of these other charges, I got to say, they just, they, they make me feel uneasy because of the, the not just because of the look, because of, I think, the precedent that they set. And, and so that's, you know, that's coming from someone obviously who believes that Donald Trump is a deeply troubled, delusional, corrupt person. But that I think it's especially important to give the benefit of the doubt in the criminal justice system to people that we especially dislike. That's kind of how, I mean, the whole basis of this thing. But anyway, that's kind of where I'm at on this. Yeah. And I think there was a real missed opportunity during the January 6th Capitol riots. It was just, I think, a very unifying moment, if not a very horrifying moment, where, I mean, obviously, we now have the text messages released. Every Republican who could contact the White House was doing so and saying, please stop this. I mean, it was embarrassing for Republicans. Like, there was, I think, a nationwide moment 
of this is bad and Trump is part of this. And I think we've taken that idea um, that, that we don't like this, we don't want this, and we've so politicized it and now criminalized it um, that it's just now an inkblot test. How you feel about January 6th now has more to do with just whether you're a Republican or a Democrat than it was on that day which is just universal distaste. And I just think that that is a failure of leadership to, to, to politicize something like that. And, and I, I just, I don't know. Yes, yeah, well, it, it is an abuse. Yeah. I think that's a political case you make in that, well, you know, this happened. Donald Trump did nothing sitting in the White House watching the news and so forth. Great. And I think that's a very strong case to make about a deep and deeply concerning failure of leadership. But again, bringing a kind of borderline, I would say, criminal case, that's a different sort of thing. And if I were if I were Joe Biden, I don't know if I would do this if I were Joe Biden, but in my weird alternative universe, right, uh, I, I would almost think about pardoning Donald Trump and just saying, like, you know what, there's this, this looks horrible and this politicization of of our, our opponents. I don't I don't feel like I'm doing this, but to kind of rise above this sort of thing, why don't we just put this aside so there's no there's no sense that I'm trying to essentially cancel my opponent. Uh, and, you know, I, I think politically that might actually not be a bad move because a big part of what Donald Trump is arguing is, well, Biden and the deep state are going after me. They're trying to keep me out. And so I, I don't know. I think it would be in some way almost the right thing to do for the country. I, the parallels to Nixon's uh, Ford's pardon to Nixon aren't, you know, exactly on point. But I, I feel like this would maybe be a moment for Joe Biden to rise above or at least demonstrate some sort of real leadership. Remember, I mean, during his inauguration, he said he's going to try to bring the country together. Well, what could bring the country together more than saying, like, you know what, we're not going to prosecute Donald Trump for these things uh, that really seem sort of borderline? You know, I, I, when I mentioned this on the on the Discord, people freaked out. I was like, oh, my God, you can't do that. No one is above the law. And I understand that no one is above the law should be. That's a right. Theoretically. But in, in reality, we know it's not the case. But also, I would think you need to ask, well, what are what are the larger concerns here? And sure, if maybe if there's a case to be made against someone, you don't make it for the greater good of the country. And I think that can be a compelling argument at times. That was certainly the argument that President Ford believed in when clearly President Nixon was guilty of some stuff. And so in this instance where the case against Donald Trump for everything except for the documents is kind of iffy, I don't know. This I feel like this is a missed opportunity for Joe Biden. Yeah, and I, I, I tend, to, I agree. I think that Joe Biden, if you listen even to his inauguration speech, there was an acknowledgement that he was elected because he wasn't Trump, and people were tired of the bickering and the fighting and partisanship, and they just wanted like this elderly 
grandfather who was going to just kind of be a, not a potted no, but it, plant, but like he yeah. wasn't going to be dramatic. And I mean, he, he didn't campaign really. Right. And so to be elected under that mandate, which is let's do a little bit less here. Um, and then to turn around and treat it as, and of course, Jack Smith is not Merrick Garland, who is not uh, Joe Biden, but he's a special uh, counsel, not an independent one. And Merrick Garland does report to Donald Trump, even if there is, you know, a degree of separation. Um, that I think you have to understand your mandate. And I don't think that, that yes, this is definitely something that the January 6th committee was calling for. This is something that uh, the progressives in the party are calling for. But leadership is more than like the the headline and the quick hit of endorphins. Leadership is doing the thing that's unpopular, that is not going to get you a lot of applause. Um, but that in your judgment is, is right for the country. And, and I'm not saying that this is unique to Joe Biden. I think a lot of our politicians are just, it's, it, and maybe it's a Twitter problem. You just want to get all the likes on Twitter. You just, it's, it has nothing to do with standing up and doing the right thing. It just has to do with, I want to go on Fox news now and I want people to like what I have to say. Yeah, and yeah. it's so frustrating. I, I feel, I was thinking about who, if anyone in modern political life that I could think of was in a prominent position who would have the the courage uh, or maybe the screw loose to a certain extent to do something that like I proposed. And the only name that came to mind, uh, and I'm admittedly biased here, would, would be John McCain for anyone in the last like generation or so, a prominent figure who might be willing to take a risk like that for the sake of honor, integrity, those sort of things. But, but you're right. I mean, it's just in such, in such short supply and it's, it's just deeply depressing and distressing and so forth, you know, but one other aspect of this I wanted to ask you about or bring up is, you know, some folks have mentioned, well, in one way, this maybe helps Donald Trump. Certainly, I, I would agree with you. It helps him with Republican primary voters. But some folks would say, well, look at all the cash he's burning through uh, legal defenses. And he's burned through an awful lot of it. I think in 2023, he's taken in 53 million or slightly more. But he's burned through around 43 million, largely in legal expenses here. Uh, but my take on this is that doesn't really matter. Uh, just simply because once you get to the general election, and I think Donald Trump just breezes through the Republican primary, Jay, if you're listening, I'm sorry, it's just how it's going to happen, I think, uh, that that the money the money will be there because the alternative is Joe Biden, and Joe Biden is a deeply unpopular alternative to a lot of folks. And so I really think this talk about how this this hurts him in, in terms of fundraising, I, I, I don't really buy that also because Donald Trump is the greatest we've ever seen at getting free free media. So that's kind of my take on that. I wanted to get your, your thoughts. Predicting Donald Trump's political future <laughs> is such a fraught exercise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm going to be wrong, um, whatever I say. Sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, before the uh, Alvin Bragg indictment, he had a 15-point lead over DeSantis. Now he has a 30-point lead. So he's doubled his 
popularity in the primary by getting himself indicted. Um, and I think that that was largely driven by the sheer ridiculousness of the fact that you need to pay like a porn star with your campaign funds. That that ridiculousness, I I think, drove some of that support. I tend to think that this indictment falls more into the Alvin Bragg category than it does into the classified documents category. And therefore, this is also going to help him in the primary. He'll have more than a 30-point lead over DeSantis then. In the general, I I guess I, I still can't predict because Joe Biden did not beat the crap out of Donald Trump in the general. Joe Biden have had every single benefit that he could have possibly had and still won by like 4.5 percentage points. And now the news cycle will be all Donald Trump all the time. And I think if you're trying as the White House to sell anything, to sell Bidenomics, to sell whatever you want to sell, Inflation Reduction Act, whatever, you can't because you have now lost the news cycle forever. And I know that being in jail is not necessarily a positive <laughs> news cycle for Trump. However, sometimes all news is good news. And if you're going to have like a low turnout election, um, which, you know, that used to benefit Republicans. I don't think that's so much anymore because Republicans are no longer like the high educated voters. I think now it's pretty split. So, but, you know, if you're going to have a low turnout election, maybe, you know, I don't know. It's I Yeah, know. <laughs> this far out, it definitely is uh, something, something of a crapshoot, I would say. Well, let's get into that, actually, because it kind of segues really, I think, nicely into that, because just before that latest indictment came out, there was a big New York Times Siena College poll that found that that President Biden is really neck and neck with Donald Trump. Uh, and, you know, when people in the poll were asked who they'd vote for if the election were held today, 43 percent said Trump, 43 percent said Biden and 6 percent said, well, if that's the choices, I'm not going to vote. <laughs> so and 4 percent said they'd vote for another candidate. And then there was 4 percent said, I don't know, at this point. And, and, you know, it's clear to me that even Biden supporters aren't generally very excited about the prospect of another four years of Joe Biden. I mean, only 45 percent of potential Democratic primary voters in this poll wanted to see Biden renominated. And of those, if you take a look at that 45 percent who or those, sorry, that 55 percent said I'd rather see someone else, around 44 percent of them said, well, it's his age, it's his mental acuity, and 20 percent said, ah, it's his job performance. But Essentially here, we have, I, I would be surprised if we didn't get a rematch of 2020, which in a weird way was kind of, I will argue, a rematch of 2016, where you like find the most unlikable people, the most polarizing people, right? I mean, I think Donald Trump wins in 2016 because the Democrats find a way to to nominate someone who's even more unlikable in some ways than Donald Trump. And then in 2020, you nominate just a very lukewarmish kind of Democrat who really no one outside of the Biden family is enthusiastic about. And, and then we have a rematch of this in 2024. And that's why I think, yeah, that people say, oh, Donald Trump can't possibly win. I, 
I don't know. I <laughs> I certainly uh, would not be uh, surprised if he did. And these polling results seem to suggest that. But I wanted to get your take. What, what do you make of these polling, uh, early polling results right now? So I'm of the mind that Donald Trump cannot win a general election, no matter who you put him up against. You could put him up against Kamala Harris. You could put him up wow. like against Big Bird and the Big Bird would win. So, uh, and, and it's because I just think that Hillary Clinton lost the election. Donald Trump did not win the election. I mean, during the 2020 or during the 2016 election, he basically like didn't even have a real campaign staff. And now he's much more sophisticated, much more built out, has, you know, obviously huge supporters. Um, has money, although he's, you know, burning through money as well. So I just think you can't recreate 2016. You cannot take someone so disliked, so corrupt, who like just was so fake. I mean, oh, what do you keep in your purse? Look at, I've got hot sauce in my purse. Who's the one person in the world you'd ever want to meet? Who's the one person? Lizzo. Lizzo. So I just, you can't recreate. Hillary Clinton. And because you can't recreate Hillary Clinton, I just don't see any path for Trump. I know that all these polls say that they're neck and neck. I think people would vote for dead Joe Biden over alive Trump, even if uh, there were third parties involved. I mean, that's how negative I, I am about Trump in the general. And I think that is egged on by my reading of the recent midterm elections. And I do think that Trump has a case to make to the American people, which is was your life better under me or is it under Joe Biden? That's literally the only thing he would need to talk about. He'd go across the country and talk about that. Will he talk about that? Oh God, no. Yeah. No. <laughs> There's no way. No. 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 Well, but, you know, a, a couple of things, Alba, and it's weird, right? Because you're you're making the argument that he's probably not electable, and I'm going the other way. And maybe it's like I said, because I got burned in a horrible way in in 2016, and I'm just, I, uh, you know, once uh, twice, once burned, twice shot. I don't know. You know what I'm saying, anyway. But it seems to me also that when Donald Trump has been on, uh, been running, right? So, uh, 2022 midterms aside, Donald Trump tends to outperform his polling numbers. And maybe that's been adjusted for, maybe not, right? And I can see the argument that, well, once you start seeing the Don, the anti-Trump campaign ads with Donald Trump, you know, fiddling while the Capitol burns kind of thing, where, okay, those swing voters that are so important in you know, those few battleground states, yeah. And so my, my, intellectual side, my rational side agrees with you, but something in my gut just says, I just, I, I will not count Donald Trump out. I could see Joe Biden, because, you know, Joe Biden getting up there on the debate stage and just doing something, I, I don't know what, you know, but it's just, it, it's a fraught sort of thing, I suppose. And so I, I, I think you're right in terms of just looking at the numbers and what we know right now. Uh, but you know, also I look at uh, national polls can be deceptive, right? Because presidents aren't elected through national polls, you know, and if you take a look at state level polling in those closest states, well, I, you know, you, you see that, okay, it looks at maybe even a little bit better for Joe Biden and that kind of heartened me in a way, but, but again, 
in the end, I just feel like I, I will I refuse to count Donald Trump out, both because Donald Trump is just an incredible battler who seems to be authentic and connects and can rally his base in a way that Joe Biden can only dream of. And also the fact that Joe Biden is an old guy who's clearly not at the top of his game anymore and anything could happen with Joe Biden. You know, there's a reason why I think Joe Biden is so seldom puts himself in front of the press, less so than I think any modern president. When you have a guy who, uh, anyone who in public life, who the more he exposes himself to the public, the less popular he gets, I'd say Ron DeSantis is the same way. You got a problem there, I think. And that's not how Donald Trump is, at least with you know his likely supporters. So yeah, I agree with all of that. And my thinking that Donald Trump loses has little to do with enthusiasm um necessarily it i think that in 2016 a lot of people shared your understanding and they underestimated trump because he was so unpopular and so you didn't have the league of women voters out there with the voting truck in wisconsin scooping up votes that underestimated nature of donald trump is gone and also the nature of our elections has vastly changed. So I think that if you have some, so it is a lot of work to get out there and scoop up mail-in ballots and to go knock on doors. You have to be very motivated to do it. And so because Donald Trump is such a motivator, I think that he brings out the the people to go into those swing counties and to go physically grab ballots. So it, it it to me has a lot to do with just the way that our voting is, which doesn't necessarily measure the sentiment of the people. I think it is skewed a lot toward how much legwork are the are the more extreme partisans willing to do. And I think when it comes to Donald Trump, the more extreme partisans are willing to do a lot of legwork. And that, to me, defeats Donald Trump yeah. every single that, day. Of yeah, that, that's that's a great point. That 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 get out the vote effort is certainly going to be a lot more uh, a lot more strenuous than it was in, in, in 2016 for all those reasons. So, but yeah, I said what one final thing on this is it's just as it's just as an American, it's depressing to me to realize that for the third straight presidential election. I feel like I'm going to be voting for the lesser of, of two evils. You know, it's, it's in my in my better world, I'd be voting in, I don't know, like a Buttigieg uh, uh, Scott election or something, you know, something like that. Right. And it's been a long time since I actually enthusiastically, you know, uh, cast a vote for a presidential candidate. And it just kind of makes me sad, I got to say. Well, let's move on from all of this presidential politics stuff uh, to something very different. And that is early this last week, Fitch, well, one of the those big three credit rating agencies, downgraded its long-term rating for the U.S., saying that the downgrade reflects the expected fiscal deterioration over the next three years, a high and growing general government debt burden, and the erosion of governance relative to Double A and triple A rated peers over the last two decades that's manifested in repeated debt limit standoffs and last minute resolutions. 
Now, the agency also said that the U.S. lacks a medium-term fiscal framework. Unlike most of its peer countries, it has a complex budget process, and we've only made limited progress in dealing with rising Social Security and Medicare costs due to an aging population. Fitch also projects that the U.S. economy will go into a mild recession toward the end of this year and into 2024, lower GDP growth. Now, that said, one positive in their report, they said, well, U.S. has key structural strength, like a, like a large, advanced, well-diversified, high-income economy, a dynamic business environment, and, of course, the fact that the U.S. is the dollar, is the world's preeminent reserve currency. Now, to this point, the U.S. was only one of nine countries that Fitch had rated at AAA, uh, and the remaining top-tier rated countries are Australia, Denmark, Germany, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Switzerland, Norway, and Sweden. Now, in response to this, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called the downgrade entirely unwarranted and that it was based on what she termed a flawed assessment using outdated data. And she said, at the end of the day, Fitch's decision does not change what all of us already know that Treasury securities remain the world's preeminent safe and liquid asset, and that the American economy is fundamentally strong. Now, to me, practically speaking, the downgrade won't have any immediate consequences uh, for the U.S.'s ability to finance its massive deficit spending. By the way, that's $1.4 trillion this year. The national debt somewhere around $32 trillion. And if you're keeping track, that's roughly 121% of GDP. That's higher than even it was at the peak of spending during World War II, which was the previous high mark. Now, of those other big three agencies, uh, Standard & Poor's downgraded the U.S. to AA plus in 2011. They've maintained that rating. Moody's, the third of the big three, still has us at AAA. So is this, in your view, May, anything to be all that concerned about or just much ado about? Not a whole lot. So I, I think it is, um, I, I hate to word, use this word, I'm, but an indictment on our, our budget process, our spending problem. And I think that that is something to be taken seriously. I do think that maybe it won't happen tomorrow, but it will increase the cost of our borrowing and our borrowing is enormous, um, so enormous that it will eat up, and this is according to the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, a third of income growth over the next 30 years. So any amount that you consider that people are going to make more money, a third of that is going to be scooped up and either pay for our debt, pay for tax increases in order to pay for that debt, etc. So I think that 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 is pretty sky is falling. Like that is a quality of life that is a third less than we would otherwise have. Um, and, and not only that, but I, I guess I can accept a rating downgrade if we, if we have the steps that we know are going to put this country on the right track spending wise. And we know that this is a blip in the road and that things are getting better. But this, to me, is just one step on the way to another rating downgrade because our debt problem is primarily Social Security and Medicare. And we have no solution, no proposed solution. We can't even talk about both Republicans and Democrats are now on the don't touch it train. And if you don't touch it, 
They are going to go insolvent by 2033 and 2034. And under that system, Social Security benefits will automatically be cut by 20%, and Medicare payments will be cut by 11%. And that will continually increase. So we, we can't even, and we can't even have the conversation. So this to me is, it, it is, it is just a small warning sign, but we're not on the right track. So it's just going to get worse. And, and that to me is a, uh, is a real concern because my, my positive scenario, right, is that uh, markets uh, and these sort of market mechanisms gradually increase the cost of borrowing to the point where our, our, our political leaders say, well, we have to do something about this and it'll be kind of a gentle correction. But it, for all the reasons you point out, it doesn't seem to me like that's all that likely. The more I think about it is that they'll have to actually be a serious crisis. Like so I, I, I am sure that Congress will not allow benefits for Social Security to be, you know, slashed that drastically. So we'll have to take some sort of action. But of course, the time to take action, have rational uh, action that is not so disruptive, is to do it well in advance of the crisis. But I think, given how different even Republicans and Democrats who are talking about that, how different their approaches to this would be, that we're going to need a crisis for anything to happen. And uh, I just see something really bad happening, oh, a decade or so from now, and and not really any good way to avoid it. I, yeah, I agree. Just in the first nine months of fiscal year 2023, we borrowed $1.4 trillion dollars like a trillion you can't even fathom what a trillion means how large that is and that's borrowed not spent so we have an out of control spending problem you can't address it by i know like in the fiscal responsibility act which was the sort of debt ceiling measure we're going to do little fixes to snap benefits and we're going to you know do tiny fixes around the edges it is social security it is medicare you cannot tax the crap out of people to pay for these things those programs themselves need to be fixed you can't tax the rich i mean you could tax the poor you could tax the middle class and the poor to pay for it absolutely you're just going to have like that's going to have to be a big decision um, the rich just can't pay for it. It's just too much. So, yeah, and I mean, until so, we're yeah. willing to have that conversation. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I agree. Certainly, you can't do it all on the backs of the rich. I think some sort of uh, uh, if you if you want to make these programs solvent for the long term, that means raising. If you want to keep the benefit levels, that means raising the tax burden on the middle class. And there's just no way around that as far as, as as far as any analysis that I've seen can have. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's going to be politically painful no matter what. And I just don't see the the will to do that. It's a lot easier to borrow, even if our borrowing costs are a little higher for, for politicians to do that instead of facing the wrath of the voters who either have their taxes raised or their benefits cut. Yeah. And I... Uh... I think that it misses also just the the idea of should we borrow a lot of money and you know what the ratings decrease and I have a an article in Real Clear Policy called insane deficit spending is immoral. I think there really is a morality issue with pushing today's spending 
to future generations and letting those generations have worse education system, worse infrastructure, a weaker military, less clean air and water. Like that is what this means. Um, and I, yeah, so the, the ratings decrease is, is what it is. We have to have a moral conversation, I think, about pushing today's, you know, elderly benefits to children being born. I, I, I think the problem, the fundamental problem is that given the incentives of politicians in our system, right, the short term electoral incentives, that is just asking these folks who have been very successful in this short term uh, two year cycle sort of system to think 20 years down the road, that's a tough argument to make. And we just don't have very many political leaders that have the, that have the backbone, the courage, the, the true morality, I would argue, even in that word, to, to do that sort of thing. And that's just, that's just deeply unfortunate as well. Yes, we, I am not going to offend the listeners, uh, but if anybody would like to have my take on the baby boomers, you can check <laughs> out my article on Feel Clear Policy. I, I, I'm with you on there for sure. Absolutely. We'll try to include a, a, a link to that as as well. All right. Well, on that, it was kind of a depressing note to end on, but uh, oh, oh, well, well, that's American politics for you. But we will end on that note. There's a lot of stuff that we weren't able to get to that we will be getting to in the midweek show, like gender-affirming medical care. This has been an issue that Jay and I have talked about a lot, but May actually had an opportunity to testify to Congress uh, recently on that. So I'm really excited to talk to her about that issue. We want to talk about initiatives and referenda. There's a, there's a big one in Ohio coming up, but it's a larger issue as well. And a big report from uh, Science and Nature on social media echo chambers and what they do for polarization. We're going to get to all of that in the midweek show. So if you're a supporter, you'll be seeing that on Tuesday. And if you're not, well, we hope you'll consider becoming a supporter. It's pretty simple and straightforward to do. Just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. You can also support us on Venmo or at politicsguys. Or through PayPal, you can find all those support links in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. We know some folks are in a position where they'd like to get that full midweek show, not just the preview, but you're not in a position to financially support the podcast. Totally not a problem. Just send me an email, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get that set up for you. And whether you're a supporter or not a supporter, we would really appreciate if you could spread the word, uh, subscribe, rate and, re rate and review us on your podcast app if you haven't done that yet, and share episodes on social media. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can do that on our listener Discord. If you're a supporter, that's always a fun and interesting forum. There's Facebook and Twitter. Also, email mail at politicsguys.com, and you will find links to all of that in the show notes. And finally, before we go, as always, a very special thanks to our fantastic executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Will Morano, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, Don Oglesby, and Ivan English. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.